On January 20th, 2001, George W. Bush was inaugurated as the 43rd President of the United States. And for those unfamiliar with uh, American history, George Bush would have a tremendous impact on the world and a tremendous impact on the presidency of the United States. But little do people know who weren't alive at the time, George W. Bush had a very, very drastic and world-changing presidential election as well. This is the 2000 Bush v. Gore presidential election. Hello and welcome back to the Cleocast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Matt. And we're going to get started today with Bush v. Gore. The 1990s were a very interesting time in American politics. You had the ending of the Reagan dynasty with H.W. Bush losing the election in 1992, with Bill Clinton becoming the new president, who, as a Democrat, was able to push back some of the changes and kind of right-leaning conservative majority that had been gripping the country throughout the 80s. Now, in the mid-90s, in about 96, the midterm elections, the Republicans managed to retake the House, and there was this kind of divide in the country between right and left, with the political levers of power being controlled and split through both parties. And that's what made the 2000 election so consequential, because you have Bill Clinton, who was a two-term president, who can't run again with conflict building up around you know, health care, all, all these different things. And Bill Clinton was still quite the popular president at the end of his term, Monica Lewinsky notwithstanding. But you had the newcomer, George Bush, who his father had lost election to Bill Clinton, but now this young governor of Texas trying to make the bid for the Republicans to finally retake the levers of power for Washington and to kind of put the country back on the track that Reagan had started it on in 1980. Now, scoring up on the Democratic side is Vice President Al Gore. Riding, some would say, the coattails of Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton's popularity, Al Gore is a pretty dry politician seemed pretty boring to the American public, which is outlined, if you check it, the 1990s uh, media hit The Simpsons, ragging on him for being a boring person. But Al Gore was an environmentalist and someone with a prestigious education attending Harvard University and prestigious private schools for most of his life. Although serving in the Army, he was able to be a representative uh, in Tennessee from 1977 to the mid-80s, and then he became a senator and followed with Bill Clinton as his vice presidential candidate and then vice president for his two terms in office. Now, for some of our younger listeners who might not have been alive for it, the 1990s were a very different time than the current day politically. There was a lot more optimism in the air, a lot more feeling that things were going to only get better. You know, the Soviet Union was gone. The Internet was kind of starting to revitalize the economy. There was new business floundering everywhere and just, you know, Seinfeld was on TV. There was just optimism everywhere. You don't really get into that kind of 
post 9-11 depression until 9-11 happens in September 11th to 2001. So everything was just kind of on the up and up. And despite some kind of posturing towards more divisiveness in general american politics were still very cordial compared to today like we we were kind of starting to get more of the end of bipartisanship in around 1996 when newt gingrich's house uh was kind of standing as a bulwark against everything Bill Clinton wanted to do. And then with the Monica Lewinsky scandal and subsequent hearings and impeachment. But in general, everything was still kind of more geared towards bipartisanship. We kind of weren't out of the, you know, grand American ideal yet. And that grand American ideal in politics and idea of bipartisanship is the world that Al Gore comes from a man who was his entire adult career a political servant in Washington has basically been around that his entire life well adult life whereas if you look at if you look at George Bush he was viewed as more of a fail son than anything else uh his brother Jeb would go on to be governor of Florida and be successful in his political career. His dad was president and vice president. and But all George W. Bush had under his belt was owning the Texas Rangers, playing around with fighter jets in the Texas Air National Guard, and all around being the, you know, drinking, partying, fail son uh, that is bound to happen with any powerful political family but has been able to recover in his later years in the 90s to become governor of Texas. But when you look at the credentials for exactly you know what type of Washington-esque resumes they have, owning the Texas Rangers, a baseball team, or uh, you know being the president's son in a former life, is pretty different than being a multi-term representative and senator and vice president of the United States. But if there's one thing George Bush had was a folksy Texan style to his mannerisms and although constantly misspeaking, which would become known as the term Bushisms, had a more down-to-earth feel and more human in his life actions than what is a calculated politician like Gore. Now, as we are wont to do, we tend to frame this as kind of a uh, either-or type of thing, but there were actually a lot more people running during the primary process. Now, Bush and Gore would be the two ultimate victors of their respective parties, but for instance, on the Republican side, the three major contenders were George Bush, and then you also had Alan Keyes, who was the Assistant Secretary of State of Maryland, who won 900,000 votes in the primary process. And then also John McCain, one senator from Arizona, who got 6 million votes during the primary process and carried seven states, including his home state of Arizona. But he withdrew before the primary uh for the convention, rather, where everybody actually elects the candidate because it was obvious that Bush was going to win. And what parties tend to do is they tend to kind of try to coalesce around the candidate that they, you know, because 
at the end of the day, the Republicans want a Republican to win, and the Democrats want a Democrat to win in most cases. So generally, they try to kind of present a united front around the actual convention time. Now, the 2000 presidential election primary for the Democrats were a bit different. Uh, Al Gore was the main choice from the beginning for the Democratic Party. And if anyone paid attention to the 2016 presidential primaries for the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party is a different system for their primary system than the Republicans. So the only person who really stuck along for the actual primary system was Bill Brady, the former U.S. Senator from New Jersey, who was able to win zero contests and three million of the popular vote, withdrawing in March 9th, right before the primary or convention. Uh, So the Democratic Party was coalescing around Al Gore, but there are a few fun declined presidential candidates for the Democratic Party, including Ted Turner, Jay Rockefeller, John Kerry, Jesse Jackson, and for name alone, Dick Gephardt. So the Democratic Party was circling around Al Gore, mainly because he's right in the popularity of uh, Bill Clinton, but also had some valuable ideas around environmentalism. If you know anything about Gore, Gore was a strong believer in climate change and that we have to start making a change to our emissions and climate in order to save our existence. And uh, he is famous for writing books and making documentaries about this. And although some of his predictions were a bit, you know, believed to be too extreme, if you look at our current temperatures in the world today or any environmental issues going on here in 2022, maybe Al Gore in 2000 was a bit ahead of his time and probably could have made a solid change. But... We'll get into why he wasn't able to do that later. So here's a basic rundown for any of our audience who might not care about U.S. presidential elections or who might be from like Belgium or something and not know about U.S. presidential elections. Effectively, there are two parties in the United States, Republican Democratic Party. So starting usually the year before, around like March or so, there's a primary process in which a bunch of candidates run under the Republican or Democrat banner to see if they can get the nomination to be their party's candidate. And this goes through, and there's elections in every single state. You know, there's delegates that are awarded on different measures based on whatever the party's rules are. And then there's effectively a convention the year before where they officially nominate their candidate for the presidency. So in this case, the convention, the Republican National Convention, decides that George Bush is going to be their official candidate and the Democratic National Convention decides that Al Gore is going to be their candidate. And then usually around the convention time, that's also when they pick their vice president. So George Bush in this case picks Dick Cheney and Al Gore in this case picks Joseph Lieberman. So then you get into the actual election process where you effectively replicate the process except for in this general election instead of the states being split up and say you have kansas voting march 3rd and then missouri voting march 4th 
it's all just on one day. It's the national election. It's all on November 3rd of whatever year the election's being held. So what that means is that then you have multiple, multiple months of buildup of campaigning. You go do rallies. You buy television advertisements. But it's all just building up to one day. So you kind of have to focus your strategy the best way you can because we also don't have a popular vote system here. The popular vote is counted and measured, but it doesn't mean anything because we have the Electoral College. And what that does is it divides the total number of senators and House representatives amongst all 50 states and awards them on merit of population. So say California currently has about 55 delegates that they can award to whoever wins their election. And Kansas has, I believe, six right now. So the states can award the delegates in whatever way they want. They don't have to award them to like all to the winner. They can award them proportionally, such as Nebraska and Maine both have a split. So they have four or five delegates go to the winner, and you can also win one or two delegates even if you come in second place. So it's kind of a little bit of a split system, but effectively you want to have your strategy go based on both party delegation. So say New York is going to generally go Democrat. So you want to campaign there a lot less if you're a Democrat and also if you're a Republican, because whoever gets, you know, 51% of the vote in New York is going to get all of the delegates, a hundred percent of them, not 51%. So there's almost no purpose in campaigning there as a Republican or as a Democrat, because you're going to win anyways. So that's where we get to swing States. Generally speaking, most states, such as, say, Texas, is going to usually vote Republican, so it's usually a pretty safe red state, or Idaho is usually going to vote Republican, they're usually pretty safe, and similarly with California and New York for Democrats. These states are usually locked in, but the demographics will change, you know, like California used to vote for Republicans, you know, Nixon was a Republican president from California who carried California back in the 70s. But, you know, times change. So swing states are the states that don't have a person they usually vote for. They swing between elections. They're the ones where all the money gets put in. States such as Ohio, Florida, maybe Virginia sometimes, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. These are the states where they actually kind of matter in our elections. Everybody else has their minds decided. These states are where people win. Now, you can agree or disagree with the Electoral College being a process. It is inherently undemocratic because we live in a republic, and how it's supposed to work is you elect people in your state to assign delegates. So generally, it's supposed to go, you know, based on how the state elections go, but it kind of doesn't really work like that necessarily anymore. But that's how it works in our system. So it's completely possible for a president to be elected without winning the popular vote or the majority of the votes in the United States. You just have to get 270 points from this electoral college in order to win the presidency. And it's based off of winning uh, a majority in all different states. And it's completely possible to just win a bunch of states uh, that completely ignores a... You can win half of the United States population if you win the right states. So that's an issue if you don't get enough electoral college, you know, votes for 270 
or if you don't get the popular vote either way. And if there's a state where you have an issue on deciding exactly how many votes you got, then it's hard to determine who exactly is president. And each state is in charge of how the voting system works. So for the primary systems, there might be, you know, for the Democratic Party, there might be a caucus where you all show up and you decide on who the candidate's going to be. Or there might be a primary where you just vote like it's a regular thing, but you vote it as your party. But in the national elections or state elections, the state decides what voting systems you use. Whether you're in like one of those uh, little closets where you can punch your vote in or you just do it in uh, a large church, which I have some objections to, but we're not going to discuss that. Uh, The voting system depends on the state. And there are some states that go a bit cheaper than others, whether you get to touch a screen or, in the case of Florida in 2000, you stick a card into a little metal box where the names of everyone's listed on there, and you take a push bar, and you push in, and you punch in all of these little dots. And those little dots that knock out are called chads. And uh, if you won't know anything about the demographics of Florida, it's elderly. It is very diverse with some people who don't uh, speak English as their first language. And there's a lot of varying issues uh, in the democratic process in Florida if you struggle with any type of move of your hand to push in these little chads. So... In comes the 25 electoral college points for the 2000 election for Bush v. Gore. Turns out, each of them didn't really have the majority of the popular vote on either way. And Florida was tight. And I mean tight. So, all the other states have kind of been decided, right? Florida's the one that matters. Florida decides who wins the election. And according to early polling, it looks like Gore's won it. In fact, most major news at networks declare that Gore's won. But as the night goes on, it starts to get closer. And all of these news networks resent their declaration. And they say, well, okay, it's too close to call now. The margin between them was only around 2,000 votes, and it was just incredibly tight. Bush had the lead for most of the night, though, but as more Democratic-leaning counties started to trickle in, such as Miami-Dade and stuff, Gore slowly started to lead. It was still too close to call, however. Soon enough, Gore did concede, though. He thought that you know the election was over or whatever. But as more and more results started to tally in and the margin got smaller and smaller and smaller, he actually called Bush and withdrew his concession. You know, they were going to fight till the end. By the final count on Election Day, the final official count, Bush had won by 300 votes. But this margin was so slim that it was enough. And there were also a lot of rejected ballots, such as mail-in ballots that had invalid postmarks or overseas ballots that arrived late. And this was all just adding to the controversy. The margin was so slim that every single ballot counted and counted a lot. So if any of them were 
gotten rid of illegitimately or if any of them had been messed around with and you couldn't really tell what the result was, that mattered a lot. Now, Gore's team requested a hand recount in Broward, Miami-Dade, Palm Beach, Voluisa County. It was his right under Florida state law. You know, a candidate, if it's within a certain margin, can request hand recounts to verify the result fully. And naturally, Gore wanted the recounts to kind of factor around counties that he was likely to carry because he figured that would add the, what, 300, 500 votes I need out of the counties that have a population of close to a million people. The issue is, is with the Florida Chad ballot system. See, the punch cards, as Matt mentioned earlier, were they kind of had a tendency to not actually separate or punch through. And in some cases, there would be, if you imagine kind of a hole punch, in the middle of the hole punch, there would be a small dimple. Now, what do you count that as? Is that a vote? Did they mean to vote for that person? Or did they simply press in the thing, you know, the little rod, puncture it, realize, oh, wait, this is the wrong person, and then vote for someone else, you know? How do you count this vote? Is it legitimate? And this is where we started to get into the problem, because some poll workers were counting them, and some poll workers weren't, because it wasn't entirely clear what they should be counted as. So it kind of fell into the individual poll worker. So then when we start to get these hand recounts of the ballots, votes are getting counted differently as they're being recounted by different people. So it's just a giant mess. You know, the results are unclear. It's counted differently depending on who looks at it. The chads are just a completely incomprehensible system, you know. Sometimes they're still barely attached. Sometimes there's a small dimple. Sometimes they're half attached. They don't separate cleanly. It's not clear. Sometimes multiple chads would be punctured. So no one knew what to do. Now, obviously, this is national news and beginning to show signs of partisanship. Uh, whether you believe that, uh, you know, Gore won or Bush won, uh, started to influence that you might think that the other side is cheating or trying to get around the true election results. And this led to a demonstration of uh, right-wing Republican election canvassers for the Bush campaign, which would be referred to as the Brooks Brothers riots in Miami-Dade County in which a bunch of men wearing corporate attire decided to attempt to uh, shut down or stop the recount in Miami-Dade County in order to, you know, have the election go Bush's way. Now, this was organized uh, by many Republican staffers, uh, including both Roger Stone and Brad Blakeman, uh, two pretty famous in our modern world's uh, political sphere, but at the time really bursting into the scene. And this was an effort to uh, try to uh, stop the recount. And uh, one of the first times, at least in my understanding of American history, that this thing would be attempted. Uh, Now, but... This wasn't going to end. This issue with these chads were a pretty massive objection on both sides, and this quickly led to a Supreme Court case 
in the Florida Supreme Court, in which uh, litigation started almost immediately between Bush and Gore, arguing over the recount laws, how exactly the recount should be decided, and how should these votes be read. Now, these decisions were flying uh, through the court systems, in which they were eventually brought up uh, to the Florida Supreme Court, and the deadline to count these votes were extended. Uh, And that decision would later slide up to the Supreme Court in which we would get to the main court case of our episode, Bush v. Gore. So the election is on November 8th, and then the extension for counting the votes and the recount was extended by the Florida Supreme Court to the November 26th date, and then the U.S. Supreme Court would then cancel that vacate the decision, say, no, that's illegitimate. So the board on November 26th, when that was issued, officially certified Bush as the victor, but that's when we start to get into the actual Supreme Court case because Gore was arguing that that was an unfair decision, that, you know, the recount was still going on, you can't just declare him the victor. So that's when we get to the December 12th decision. Bush v. Gore is a very complex legal case with a lot of kind of opaque legal opinions going between it. I mean, it's certainly a unique case in its own right of just one presidential candidate suing the other over recount in one state. It's, It's got no real precedent, and that's what they were kind of working with here. The dissent in this case argued that you know, counting every single vote could not possibly be argued as a unfair result for the losing candidate, right? If we're recounting all the votes and Bush did lose after the recount, that's not an unfair result for Bush. That's a fair result for Gore. But the official opinion stated that according to the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution, that the recount as it was being preceded was unfair. It was not affording equal protection as multiple different counties had different rules, right? And also Palm Beach County in particular changed the standards for the dimples, for the chads. As I said before, the election workers didn't really know what counted, and multiple times during the recount process what counted changed and they were arguing that well under the equal protection clause changing what counts as a vote halfway through counting the votes is not fair it's not equal right they also said that miami-dade county's recount of rejected ballots did not actually include all of the precincts in miami-dade county it was just a few particular which according to their argument also fell under the equal protection clause All the counties weren't being treated equally, I suppose. And also, Broward County used far less restrictive standards than Palm Beach County, who also changed their standards multiple times. Now, the argument from the dissenters also was that, just in general, doing a recount cannot be unfair. I mean, it's the definition of fair, right? You're trying to count all the votes to get it right. But in a 5-4 split decision, the official opinion stood that the recount was unfair. It was unconstitutional. 
and they ordered that the recount was to be stopped immediately and the original result was to be certified. You know, if you can't do the recount fairly, then there's not going to be a recount at all, and Bush is the winner. Now, obviously, this was a very, very hot election at this point. I mean, it's December 12th when this gets ruled down. It's been a month of not knowing who the next president of the United States is going to be, and a month of lawsuits, legal disputes, arguments, and everything just heating up to the point where you get a 5-4 decision, the slimmest possible opinion, with it perfectly split down conservative and democratic lines of the Supreme Court. This does not necessarily lend legitimacy to the Bush presidency after this, because although he does assume office, there's always that thin veneer of, well, you only got office because the Supreme Court decided the way they did, and you lost the election, right? If the recount had happened, then Gore would have won, which could be true, but the recount didn't happen, so I guess we don't necessarily know, but... My guess is with the recount happening in primarily Democratic-leaning districts, they probably would have found enough votes to have the slim majority going the opposite way, right? If it was 530 votes for Bush, they probably could have found 531 votes for Gore. But it all does get down to just the fact that the dimples, the chads, they, they couldn't figure out a proper way to count them. You know, the poll workers didn't know how what was supposed to be counted what way, and it did also add to this air of illegitimacy. You know, the votes could be counted one way or another. If you got a ballot that was for Bush and you were for Gore, then you could just not count it, right? That's that's what people thought, at least. And it doesn't really lend itself to a fair democratic system. But in the end, Bush won by winning Florida through the Supreme Court saying that he wins by a margin of only 537 votes. George Bush is inaugurated January 20th, 2001. Although starting out relatively unpopular and having to deal with the uh, looming dot-com bubble, but September 11th, 2001, with the attacks at the World Trade Center and Pentagon and Flight 93, George Bush... W. Bush would be rocketed to supreme popularity and supreme power, with Dick Cheney and Antolin Scalia, one a Supreme Court justice, the other vice president, believing in the theory that the president should have a supreme unitary power, and with the hysteria after the World Trade Center attacks, George W. Bush was not only extremely popular, but extremely powerful, leading to the invasion in Afghanistan and subsequent invasion of Iraq, although Iraq led to uh, more protests than the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, Both went through, and both would allow the ideas and uh, profiteering of the members in the Bush White House to make a lot of money off of these two wars and allow George W. Bush to uh, win the 2004 election still off the back of being at war and the September 11th attacks. Now, George Bush, whether you like him or hate him, uh, does come with some controversies, but 
you cannot deny the fact that maybe this wasn't the great start to his presidential career. So in retrospect, you can definitely look at this 2000 Bush v. Gore debate, controversy, whatever you want to call it, as maybe the kind of beginning of what we're experiencing right now. I mean, perhaps recent events could be related back to it. Everything has definitely gotten more, but you can look back at 2000 and see maybe where it started or where it kind of all coalesced to. Maybe it's a path that we're walking down and everything is just a bigger hill than the last hill. You know, maybe it started back when Reagan got elected or maybe Nixon, you know. I don't know if there's any actual definite because it's politics and politics reflects life and life is chaotic. But, you know, we're creatures of pattern, so we try to draw patterns. And here at the Clio cast, we're, you know, not immune from that either. So we tend to draw parallels to modern society and everything we read and look at and talk about. So maybe maybe there is no inference to draw from this, though. Maybe this was isolated event done by people completely different from anybody related to today is i mean everybody involved is not really involved in politics anymore they're all old except for all the people who are still involved in politics because they're old but i don't know we'll we'll let you decide as always we've been the cleocast you can go ahead and send us an email at cleohistory.gmail.com or you can follow us on twitter at cleohistory We definitely tweet a lot of stuff, so you want to follow us there for any updates on episodes, on when we're going to be late, on when we're going to be on time, Uh, or if you have any questions, that's a good place. You can just send us a DM. Uh, Go ahead and follow us on Acast or anywhere else you find your podcasts, uh, and just let us know anything else you want to know. If you have any suggestions for episodes, you have any complaints, any criticisms, any compliments, uh, just let us know at any of our channels we follow. As always, I've been RC. And I've been Matt. And thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time.